Over the next few weeks, we will be interviewing the authors from the collaborative book, The Grief Experience, Tools for Acceptance, Resilience, and Connection, which is set to release in February of 2024. These authors have each experienced their own unique grief journey and will be sharing their personal stories with us. We will also explore the specific tools they used to cope with their grief and how these tools can benefit others who may be going through similar experiences. Grief is a complex and challenging process, and each person's experience is different. By sharing our stories and tools, we hope to provide support, guidance, and comfort to those navigating their grief journey. Each author has experienced different types of loss and comes from a variety of backgrounds, beliefs, and experiences. As a result, they offer valuable insights and perspectives. We are honored to have them join us on this podcast series and to share their stories and tools with you, our Path 11 podcast listeners. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Path 11 Podcast. As you guys know, I've had a variety of authors who have been coming on the podcast over these uh, many weeks here talking about the collaborative book that I am working on with these 25 authors called The Grief Experience. And everybody's here coming on to tell their story, to offer a tool, and to share a little bit about different types of grief. And I am really looking forward to hearing our next guest story. Her name is Carol Miller, and she is a licensed clinical social worker who has worked in the field of loss and grief for over 25 years in both agency and private practice settings. So I would say we have a veteran here on our hands that you are going to be listening to today. She serves grieving folk through all types of loss experiences, including death, infertility, divorce, job loss, health loss, and many others. Aware that reaching out to a professional for any reason takes courage and a willingness to be vulnerable, Carol holds space for folks as they connect to their core sense of authenticity, vulnerability, courage, empathy, and belonging. She understands that we are the experts in our own lives and stories and works with people to support them in setting strong, flexible boundaries, understand and move through their grief process, find supportive coping skills, and navigate through life transitions. She's also part of the teaching team for the Creative Grief Studio and a certified creative grief support practitioner. She lives out in Arizona. My dad lives, well, not where my dad lives, but my dad lives in Arizona, so that's pretty cool. And our subject today is going to be on perinatal loss and infant death. Tough topic. So there is your trigger warning. If you have experienced any of this, you know, I, I hope that you stick around to listen, but there's always a time and place to venture into listening to interviews like this. But I do know that it is going to be a very healing conversation. And Carol has a lot in personal experience to uh, talk about when it comes to this topic. So Carol, welcome to the Path 11 podcast. 
you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited to be here with you, April. Yeah. So why don't you just tell me a little bit more about, you know, your background and what you've been doing and why you decided to choose uh, the grief world of work. You know, I always say it's, I think it's more of a calling than sometimes a choice and uh, would love to hear your backstory. Sure. And yeah, I agree a hundred percent. It's not something we typically just wake up one day and go, I think I want to go in and work in the world of grief. Um, and I feel like I've been actually working with death, dying, loss, and grief pretty much my entire career. I actually worked with um, some paralegals at a law firm in D.C. for a whole lot of years, specifically in estates and trusts. And so I was already dealing with loss and death way before my own personal experiences, which for me, my first loss occurred in 1986. So we're not counting how many years that was. It's a lot. My first son was born in 1986 in February and died 40 days after his birth. From when they did autopsy, they found extensive uh, losses or extensive malformations in heart and all sorts of those kinds of things that came off the heart type of thing. Um, And I was still under 35, the magic age, when they start to think of people as geriatric. So I was told, oh, it was a fluke. So just, you know, get pregnant again, try again. Uh, And by the way, that pregnancy was pretty normal throughout. So totally blindsided that that was totally blindsided. Um. My second son was born a year later, Daniel. Uh, And again, because the first one they thought was a fluke, didn't do genetic testing, just checked his heart, was the only thing good about that kid. Um, He was trisomy 13. So Down syndrome is trisomy 21. And anything lower on the chromosomal scale will be even worse than something like Down syndrome, which can be, you know, a range of mild to severe. Um, So he managed to live two days, hooked up to all sorts of machinery. And then we had to, or we made the decision to remove the life support and let him leave the world. So that was number two in a row for me. And needless to say, my third pregnancy (laughs) Some days I still, you know, and sort of curious about how did I even manage to get through another pregnancy at all? I was pretty scared, anxious throughout. I do actually have a beautiful daughter who is now what? She's going to be 35 this year, I think. And, and she's amazing. But after that, that was it. I'm done. So, yeah, pretty remarkable that, you know, not only, you know, did you have a second pregnancy after the first, right? Because of the trauma, the fear and all of that. But then, you know, a third, you know, luckily your daughter had lived. Wow. Yeah. So can you talk to us a little bit about perinatal loss and how this is, you know, like all all losses are are so unique in their own, but... You know, I think this is a hard one probably to talk about. People probably don't even have the words like, what do I say? You know, I mean, it's just wild in some ways to 
carry a human being for nine months, you know, and then, you know, for your first child, what was your first child's name? Matthew. Matthew and then Daniel. So Matthew lived for 40, Daniel for two, you know, but still, I mean, you know, as a mom, I'm sure we have lots of moms that listen, you know, to carry life and to get to know that being and that soul and, you know, for it to leave, you know, immediately. So yeah, I would love to hear a little bit about, you know, what the grief is like with that and what people go through and, you know, what your experience was. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you sort of like hit the nail on the head in the sense of, you know, we, when we're in the process of of bringing life into the world, the expectation is that's what's going to happen. Life will occur. And when death occurs, either during the pregnancy or shortly after the pregnancy, it's, it's very devastating for both parents. And we bond. I don't know about other people, but but as soon as I recognized that I was pregnant, which was pretty much like within a couple of weeks, um, I was starting to bond with that baby right from that moment. So I bonded with all of my children right from the point of conception. I think that as a culture, we tend to think of like until we're, until the baby is born, there isn't bonding happening. And in reality, we're bonding right throughout a pregnancy. And of course, for a woman, you know, if you carry children yourself, you know, they're, they're moving around, they're letting you know that they're there, they're, they're making their presence known, and you get pretty invested in, in the baby coming along and pretty bonded to that child by the time they're born. So at any point in the pregnancy, when we think of perinatal loss, we think of a variety of losses for instance, miscarriage can happen pretty early, anywhere between, you know, right when the baby's conceived up to about the 20-week point is miscarriage, is what we consider and define as miscarriage. One in four pregnancies and in miscarriage, known pregnancies, by the way, there's a lot of couple of pregnancies that people aren't even aware of yet that are also miscarriages. Um, and so it's a pretty good size number. Uh, and then early to late stillbirth is anywhere from the 20 point up to the point of delivery. And again, these are later death losses about what they're seeing. CBC, I think the statistics I saw about 21,000 a year of stillbirth here in the States. And then infant death is anywhere from point of birth up to about a year. And CDC shows rates of about 20,000 a year for infant death, which is still a lot. And actually, I saw another statistic that said that these occurrences are four times greater likely to happen in a year than cancer death. So, yeah, I was shocked. I was like, Wow, I didn't realize that. So uh, a huge number of these perinatal losses and infant deaths, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, that's shocking to me. I, I hadn't known that at all. Thank you for that education. I mean, would, would this, do you think some of this falls in a traumatic death? Oh, you know, yeah. That, that's kind of what I'm thinking, you know? I mean, even though we've kind of turned it perinatal death, you know, and, and infant death, 
this seems to fall more in the classification of being experiencing a traumatic death. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you think of if you define traumatic death from the from the standpoint of unexpected, dramatic, you know, even for um, miscarriage at any point, the loss occurring at any point during the pregnancy, we're not thinking this is going to happen. So it's we're not prepared. We're not anticipating like. If if somebody's dying from cancer, you at least have a sense of, you know, this death is coming, we're moving in that direction, so maybe things need to be said or done or whatever. But you you don't generally have that with these types of losses. Um, or even, for instance, they, a parent goes, and I, I have met with many of these women, they go to have a test to check the genetic viability of their child at some point, and they're told there's a problem. And then they have to make a choice to, do they terminate this pregnancy? And we won't even go into what happens (laughs) recently in terms of pregnancy terminations, right? So even having to make that choice, even if they can terminate a pregnancy, but having to make that choice in in a fairly short period of time, like totally unexpected and devastating. Right. Yeah. And the other part of your story, too, I guess if there were was some genetic, you know, testing or there were complications to the pregnancy, similar, not similar, but not similar. Whereas if, you know, someone was diagnosed with a chronic illness and you're kind of watching somebody die of cancer and there's a little bit of preparation during the nine months of this may or may not, you know, be viable and this child may not live, but to, you know, go to the doctors and like, hey, everything's looking good. And then all of a sudden, I mean, that's a huge shock. That's kind of like the carpet really ripped out. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, for us, it was, you know, after Matthew was born, he came out blue and they're rushing around and taking him away. And I'm thinking I'm going to be handed a baby and be able to hold this child. And instead he's being rushed off to a NICU and his dad is following and I'm left alone waiting to hear what's going on. And and the same thing with my second son, you know, that was an emergency with Daniel was an emergency C-section. And again, totally unexpected. He just didn't pass a stress test at some point later in the pregnancy. And so they were like, man, I mean, we, maybe we should take him out. Emergency C-section. Just, yeah. Yeah. And so I'm curious too, because maybe a side of grief that we you know, don't get a chance to hear much of is the difference of grief between the mom who has carried, you know, the child. And then also we have a dad here involved. That's, you know, I mean, granted, you are the one that is is carrying the child in your body, but you have not only gone through this, but the father has as well. So do you want to talk about the differences between males and females and maybe what the experience was like for you and your husband and the grief? And did it look the same or did it look different? Yeah, well, it, both, both and, right? So, you know, here's the thing with technology, the way it is today, I think there, it's a vastly different experience for men than it was several centuries or several, you know, decades ago. So, because they can start to see the baby on ultrasounds in ways that previously wasn't possible. So they actually have the opportunity to bond much sooner in a pregnancy than, than used to be. 
right? right. So, so there's that piece. Yeah, and yet still they're not carrying the child, so they don't have the experience necessarily of the the weight of the child or the, how it felt to be, you know, carrying the baby. For men, I think the biggest thing that I hear is, and my and the experience of their dad was afterwards, people didn't ask about him; they asked about me. How's your wife doing? What's happening with your wife? And how's she managing? Nobody, that, uh, he would come home and tell me that. Nobody, nobody asked me how I was doing. And so men often can feel, I think, pretty lonely in this experience, left out and minimized in terms of their grief. And yet they have feelings about the loss of their, their child, much like the the mother does. And the other thing is we have a very strong cultural, I think, view that men are like strong and, you know, the, the protectors and the caretakers. And so they feel at a deep loss often in how to protect or fix what has happened, right? Uh, much less so than in, in perhaps a way a woman might um, but so again, you know, it feels kind of like their imperative, their their job description is is not being fulfilled in that way. They're not able to protect her um, the way they might want to. But yet they have feelings, just like mom has feelings about losing a baby. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious to know your process, like getting pregnant again, were you both equally as you know, nervous, anxious. And then I'm also curious to know, you know, how did you cope and how were you able to say, I'm going to try this again now and got your daughter. And um, because there may be some inspiration there for, you know, women who have experienced this and just the trauma from it and being petrified of getting pregnant again and experiencing that, whether or not we know it would happen again or not. But to hear like, how, how did you... I don't know if overcome is the right word, but what 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 state of mind were you able to kind of work within yourself to say, I'm, I'm going to try again? So it was it was kind of fascinating for me, I think. It, and again, because we all are very unique in how we handle these things, I, you know, there isn't any like, this is how this happens or this is the right way type of thing. But so after I, after the loss of, uh, after Matthew's death, my immediate thought was, I ain't doing this ever again. I can't do this. I can't go through this. I can't manage this. And then somewhere about midpoint like of the year, six months later, it was like this switch went, oh, yes, I really want to be pregnant. I really want a baby. And it just at that point, and, and the one fortunate thing for both their dad and I was that I never had trouble getting pregnant. So if I said to myself, I want to be pregnant, next month I was. That's not the case for a whole lot of women that I work with. So I understand there's that piece as well for many. In any case, uh, you know, I got pregnant, had Daniel. It was the same sort of response after him. Again, I'm never doing this again. I can't manage this. It's just too awful. About six months later, ding! Yes. Just went off again. Nope. It was like this sense of, I have to do this. I have to have a baby. I have to have a child in my life. I'm not sure if that's a definition of insanity or 
<laughs> and I'm going to do this come hell and hot water. You know, that third pregnancy, I was pretty anxious, very anxious. And I think one of the things that helped me was just sort of think through where can I find places to control? Because there's so very little you can control, right? Mm-hmm. So, for instance, I said, I want every test in the book, whatever year you can give me, I want it. And they were like, sure, no problem. And so many ultrasounds, I had the whole genetic, early genetic testing with her at the, the CBS chorionic testing early to, you know, guarantee me that genetically she was sound. And then they kept doing what as many ultrasounds as, uh, you know, within reason frequency as I wanted. But then I came to notice after a while, my anxiety level was so high just going into those tufts, even though all the previous ones were fine. I finally said, you know what? I wouldn't terminate this pregnancy anyway. So I'm done with the test. And they were like, okay, we're done with the test. The other thing I did was I said to my OB, I want you to schedule a C-section. He said, you don't need a C-section. You can have a VBAC. And I said, I don't care. I want to, I want to date when I know this child will be out of me. And he said, okay. And he put the date on the book. Fortunately, my daughter had the foresight to come four days early. So it was a non-issue. <laughs> but it helped me just to have those little spaces where I could make some requests of the medical folks and institute a little bit of control. Did it take away the anxiety entirely? No, but it gave it to, I always think of anxiety as like, I just need to put it in manageable level in the sense of I'm still able to do my daily life, go about taking care of myself, go about taking care of my work, whatever I need to do. So it's not about eliminating anxiety. It's just, is this manageable? Managing it, sure. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. You know, I'm, I'm curious to ask this question because, you know, at Path 11 Productions, we're always asking the question about spirituality, consciousness, life after death, and how do people make meaning or spiritual meaning? So was there any type of spiritual, um, I don't know, anything spiritual that you had turned to to get you through this? Did it completely disconnect you from your spiritual connection? Because stuff like this can, I've seen people say, what God would take a child away? People can get very angry either at any religions that they had followed or spiritual. Some people turn to it and it brings them comfort. So I'm just curious if you had any type of um, spiritual path or or thing in this that you either leaned into or leaned away from. So again, I'm going to say both. <laughs> so, you know, there were times, I mean, I, I don't define myself as religious, for sure. I don't attend a particular church or, you know, follow a particular religious dogma, but I, I, I am very spiritual. I do believe in a power greater than myself. Um, and especially after that second pregnancy, I was very angry, very angry with the God of my understanding. And I do remember took an image in my brain Riding down the car, riding down the road one day in my car and just screaming at the top of my lungs, uh, you know, at, at God and saying, how could you? And all those kinds of, you know, things. And then stopping short and thinking, Ooh, you know, maybe I shouldn't be doing that. And then thinking after that, 
I don't know. I think the God of my understanding is big enough to hold the space for me to be really ticked off right now. But happened because this really is not fair. <laughs> so, so there was that piece during and, and afterwards. And then about, you know, about three years, my daughter was about two or three years old. At that time, her father and I were, were very involved in the Unity Church and we went to Kansas. City where they where they're located, their major location is, and I thought, you know, I'm sure with all these great spiritual thinkers, maybe I should ask them why this happened. And so I went and I met with this one of their ministers there, and he started talking about, oh, you know, souls make their own choices about their path on earth, and who knows, maybe that was a path that they chose and yada, yada. And for a little bit, that felt comforting. And then afterwards, I thought kind of in my head, you know what? I can't imagine a soul picking a particular journey. So I don't, I don't think I'm going to go for that one either. I think the most meaning, seriously, I think the connection that I have with my son, despite the fact that they aren't physically with me, has been ongoing. Ever since mm-hmm. then. And they have guided my life ever since then um, in ways that I never would have probably chosen to go, um, including the decision to finish college and get my master's degree and license and work for hospices and, you know, facilitate uh, a support group for miscarriage, infant death, and stillbirth, and work with people who struggle with infertility and pregnancy loss, really feel constantly guided uh, by their presence within me. So the connection is always there. And to me, that's a very spiritual connection. Yeah, absolutely. And when you talk about guiding, you know, them guiding you and you kind of feeling that, we're currently working on a documentary about after-death communication you know, about the soul and and stuff like that. So, you know, when you get that sense or that knowing and feel their connection, have have they in some ways created synchronicities to happen in your life that you know it's either Matthew or Daniel guiding you or anything like that? Or is it just more of this internal knowing? I think mostly an internal knowing. It's just this sort of sense of this feels like the right path. And it's never been, I mean, it's always just, been so wonderful, the the things that have opened up. So I just really have a sense of their guidance in that way. I have occasionally, it's not very much. I mean, I, you know, a lot of people that I've talked to who are grieving death losses or early perinatal losses will talk about, you know, actually feeling like a visitation or like seeing certain things. And I've, I've certainly heard many stories, some of which were felt like that was, feels a little like just a synchronicity type of thing happening, but also some of that are like, ooh, okay, definitely. Um, <laughs> and so I don't discount anything at this point. And I believe that those are very possible. And I've had a few of those, like, for instance, uh, one time when I was attending a function that I, uh, miscarriage, infant death, and full birth group is doing around a Christmas sort of space. And they had offered when you came in, uh, you could 
take a heart-shaped piece of paper and write a note to your your loved one on it. So I'm sitting there writing notes, sitting in the pew while I'm doing that. And um, I felt very strongly, both of them, like as a presence on either side of me in that moment, just sort of leaning into me and supporting me. And it was physical at that point. So that hasn't happened often, but when it does, it's like, thank you, hug. Yeah, it feels good, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I remember, I think the first time I ever experienced a friend having an infant death, I was in my early 20s and they were friends of ours and the woman was pregnant and I think had lost the baby around seven months. So she still had to be induced with labor and deliver the baby and the baby was already, you know, had passed. And I don't know why I was so naive, but it's like never heard about this happening. It was the first time I ever experienced it. And I remember them talking about that, like the baby still got a social security number and they had to pick out a casket. And like, you know, all this stuff was happening where here they are like planning um, the birth and have the nursery set up. And then, you know, here she still has to go through the delivery, of course, and the baby is not alive. And, and, but they are still recognized as human beings that are given social security numbers and names and birth certificates and death certificates. And, you know, and then they had to go through the whole process of, you know, planning a funeral. And I don't know what I thought when I was in my 20s that what happened to babies when they died at a hospital, but I guess it had never dawned. I mean, I, I guess maybe if I had heard of that before in my early 20s, it was just like, oh, but no thought ever went any further into, you know, what happens there. And but all of those things, you know, that probably a lot of people don't even think about the the processes that happen after the baby die and still like if you hadn't picked a name out yet you know yeah. what would you like to put on on the birth certificate and and then having to choose you know the casket or cremation or whatever the case may be it's like those are a lot of i think little nuances that maybe people friends family aren't even thinking about like all of these decisions that still need to be made i don't know if you wanted to talk to about any of that yeah no um, <laughs> And I have to, I'll be honest with you, I, like, thinking back, again, this is one of the spaces where often men end up being the people end up doing all the work around that because I was such a, I don't even remember. There's so many spaces of time that my mind just blocked out all those memories. Um, he had to uh, arrange for the funeral home and like, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and then later for the, we did have a memorial service for him. Um, but yeah, and and good on the hospital though for also for offering that, doing those kinds of things. Because for many, many years, um, gosh, up until about the 70s, the 1970s, babies were just whisked away before mom even got to see or hold the baby. It wasn't it? offered to anybody because the thought was, oh, it'll just upset her, yikes, to hold the baby. Like, she won't be upset if she doesn't hold the baby. Right. right. <laughs> actually had a therapist that I worked with for many years subsequent to that, and she actually had that experience. She had a stillbirth, and they just took the baby away, and she never even got to see or hold the baby. So 
in this, these days, hospitals are much more likely to offer that option if the baby is can be held and, and, and yay on them when they do that. I think they do have to be careful not to push it, right? So it is important not to force parents to hold the baby because it can be very traumatizing for a lot of people. So it's really a choice that they need to be able to. Yeah, I'm pretty delicate, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But they can do other things. They can maybe get footprints of the baby and or provide the, the blanket that the baby was in. Whatever, you know, those kinds of memory type things would be helpful. And the fact that they issued a death certificate is also pretty amazing, I think, for mm-hmm. the parents because it used to be not done either. So again, it's, it's hard. And these things are important. Uh, for people often down the road. So even if they don't necessarily want it right at that moment, they may want it later. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder what your thoughts are on this too. Like, you know, when we think about and hear about history, it, it seems like, you know, when our medical system wasn't as advanced, child death and even mothers dying, giving birth was very, it was a very common thing. Especially when you go into cemeteries, you know, old cemeteries, you can see the baby stones, you know, lots of them. And, you know, I wonder, too, if because our medical system has become so advanced that we're kind of shocked when this happens. Like, how could this happen now in this advanced stage of medical care that we're receiving and what we can see and what we can test for? Like, how does this even happen? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think we are under the illusion that medical can fix everything with all the technology that we have. And the reality is... It can only do so much. And again, if you look back at the statistics, it's pretty clear that there's still pretty high rates of, you know, miscarriages and conducts, stillbirths happening, regardless of the technology. But also, I think we are under this illusion. And, you know, I remember my first pregnancy. I went through a Lamaze class. Nobody talked about the possibility of babies dying. I would read books about becoming a parent, and there was relatively little, if anything, in the books about bad things happening in a pregnancy. Mm -hmm. It was the whole focus was on the wonder and the amazing process. And it's not like you, you know, you don't want to be worried throughout a pregnancy, just a normal, no problem pregnancy Mm -hmm. that something could go wrong and yet i think we do hold the illusion that that those kinds of things don't happen and they don't happen often and unfortunately it plays out afterwards right because then society and this culture we have a tendency to say oh just move on you can get pregnant again now you have an angel in heaven some really crazy things that people can say, you know, just dismissing and downgrading the loss experience that parent that parents are having from these losses. Yeah. Yeah. So I know in our book, The Grief Experience, one of the things that we've been asked to provide along with our chapter is a tool to help people. So, you know, I've let our listeners know that when we have been recording these podcasts, it has uh, been before we have all started our writing process, but we've all been thinking about it. Um, And do you uh, know what type of tool that you might offer or suggest to people? Yeah. And this is not a tool that I came up with. It's actually one that I learned about. And I've been talking with the woman who 
to make sure she's okay with my sharing this. But this is one that I learned about when I went through the grief studio training as a part of their creative grief process. And it's called Ripples of Loss. And it's a real simple tool. And, but it's the idea behind it in part is that when a loss happens, it's, I think of it like throwing a pebble in a pond, you know, the pebble hits and that's the loss right there itself. But then there's all these ripples that move out from the loss. And those are, you know, other losses that occur because that loss happened or other losses that I'm afraid might happen because of that loss. And further out, also being able to recognize, okay, there's a tremendous, and when you look at those, all those losses, it can be pretty like, whoa, that's a lot. But also remembering what's beyond that, what else is still present, what else is still supporting us, what else do we appreciate about our lives? So not becoming totally consumed by the loss, being able to see that I'm you know, my loss is big, but it's not me. It's a part of me. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I really looking forward to reading your chapter and, you know, seeing it more in written form and, you know, and really digesting it that way. And I think that this is a, you know, I hate to say like a wonderful topic to talk about, but I, you know, sometimes on our podcast, we talk about the things that people don't want to talk about, especially when it comes to death or don't know how to bring these subjects up, or where do you go? And, you know, I've been so blessed to have this podcast that I use it as a library to be able to say, listen to this podcast, you know, to clients that come in. And so I'm really glad because we've never touched on this topic, you know, before. I think we have, it's interesting when you're talking about the Unity Church, we've kind of asked this question to some other spiritualists, like why? Mm -hmm. And we've had people get into the whole concept of soul contracts and, you know, and and theories behind why there's miscarriages and, you know, infant deaths and stuff like that. And it's it's curious, you know, it's an interesting concept, but not for everyone. Like you said, you're like, oh, it doesn't quite fit well with me. But I think all in all, in the big picture, we're, we're all asking a lot of the same question, which is like, what is this life about? Why does this stuff happen? Why are we here? You know, and these are just some of the really, you know, hard experiences that sometimes yeah. we we go through in life. So I'm so glad that we were able to give a voice on this topic through you and, you know, having your expertise. And if anybody is listening and would like to maybe ask you any questions or are curious to further the conversation, you know that we do have your email address that we were going to put in the show notes. Is there also a website that you have or is it just an email? No, I have a website. It's just my name, www.carol, S as in Sam Miller, lcsw.com. Okay. All right. Perfect. I'll make sure we put that in the show notes then. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the Path Love podcast. And for those of you who are listening, like I said, we will put those links in the show notes. We'll also have a link for the book that you can pre-order and I'm taking care of the pre-orders. So I will also be signing them. So if you want a fancy signed copy, you can get that as well if you'd like to pre-order this book. And we thank you all so much for listening. We are also kicking up our Patreon page. So if you found this podcast to be very useful and you would like to help support the production costs of this, we're always 
Uh, very grateful and appreciative of any donations, even if it's just a dollar that you'd like to send over. That would be great to keep the podcast going. So we thank you all so much. And thank you for listening. And Carol, thank you again for being a wonderful guest. Sure. Thank you, April. All right, everyone. Take care. Take care of yourselves and others. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's show. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate and review the Path 11 podcast in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, this podcast is made possible by our sponsor, Path 11 TV. Visit path11tv.com to start a seven-day free trial of exclusive video content on consciousness, healing, and life after death. That's path11tv.com. And be sure to use coupon code PODCAST30 to take 30% off your annual membership. Start satisfying your spiritual curiosity with a membership to Path 11 TV today. Bye for now.